1: Hello everyone and a very warm welcome to another Motorsport Magazine podcast. We've been doing these for seven years now and over that time we've recorded 90 shows which comes out at about 6,000 minutes of recording. It's quite a worrying figure when you see it written down like that. Anyway, many of you will remember that back in the late 1970s and early 1980s there was a radio program called Track Talk on Radio Victory. This was started by Rob Widows and his producer Mike Lawrence. And the show developed a huge cult following after interviewing some of the massive names from the world of motorsport. The likes of Bernie Eccleston, Nelson Piquet, Derek Bell, John Surtees, Sterling Moss, and even motorsport's Dennis Jenkinson all appeared on the radio show. After four decades, Rob dug his old tapes out and we began the laborious task of digitizing them with the invaluable help of Alan Hyde. The results, after many, many hours of categorizing, reorganizing, cleaning up are actually amazing. Now, I've always maintained that the Motorsport podcast should be free to everyone. However, in order to bring you these old tapes, it took weeks of work, and we feel it's only fair to ask for a tiny sum in return. This podcast is just to highlight everything that is in our audio archive at Motorsport. We've got some absolutely fantastic interviews in there, and I really can't recommend them highly enough. They're just incredible windows into the past. And you can get them for only £1.99 per download from shop.motorsportmagazine.com. Right, first off, we go back to 1979 when Rob Widows went up to Northamptonshire to talk to Lord Alexander Hesketh. They talk about James Hunt and how the two met, the image of Hesketh racing, and also how much it costs to actually race in Formula One. They go on to the enjoyment in racing, and also whether he would have had the same ambitions if he wasn't born Lord Hesketh. Well, basically, uh,
2: we went to, the first race we ever did was at Thruxton in I think April 1972 with Bubbles driving and Bubbles decided that that Formula 3 had become a great deal quicker than when he'd been doing it five or six years before that and as a result he promoted himself to team manager and got a a charming man called Steve Thompson to drive the car at Monaco which was the first very tough event we had to go to because we had to qualify And the following race meeting, Bubbles was back driving the car at a place called Chimay in Belgium, and I only turned up at the end of last practice. And Bubbles had managed to blow up two engines without doing the necessary five laps to get the qualifying money. And he said, well, now I am now a full-time team manager, and I have found this starving youth who is very keen to drive racing cars. And it turned out to be a young man called James Hunt, who was literally starving at the time, his world assets for about 25 quid and a mini on the drip and we signed there and then the only contract we ever had with him which was in fact signed on the back of a beer mat in a cafe in Belgium and that is the only written contract we had with him and I've always been rather pleased and proud of that that we never ever had the kind of contractual difficulties that you read about in the newspapers in not only car racing but football or any other sport
3: did you immediately like James Hunt as a person? Is that, was that part of why you did contract him?
2: Well, I, th- 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 there's always been a rumour that Hesketh Racing was such a joke that no-one would drive for them, and James Hunt had such a reputation for crashing cars that no-one would hire him to drive, and so as a result we were thrown into each other. <laughs> I think that uh, that is to be taken with a grain of salt, so to speak. I think that fundamentally... There was a tremendous rapport between Bubbles and James which was to last for a considerable number of seasons and I think still exists today. There was uh, an essential understanding, an unsaid understanding, which meant that James and Bubbles were able to fuse together to create a unique and a very successful combination within certain parameters.
3: There was a lot of talk in the press in those days about Hesketh being, as you've just described it, as a joke. Did, did that worry you? Did that upset you, that journalists should talk about it as a joke? Because it obviously wasn't a joke, was it? Well, it,
2: on one hand, it upset me. On the other, I think it's probably the, the greatest advantage we ever had. I think that, in all honesty, those, not only journalists, but people who decried Hesketh Racing as a joke, which was perfectly reasonable in some ways, but also resented our success, uh, should not have done the latter because they caused it. Because what they wrote changed my personal approach and my financial commitment, which was very important, from merely being a benign sponsor, happy possibly to stay even in Formula 3 or possibly look at Formula 2, into aggressively desiring to succeed in order to prove probably foolishly a small minority wrong
3: at that stage did you envisage spending the kind of money that you did eventually spend and did you worry ever about god i'm spending a lot of my own money on this well in i think one's got to look at this on a sort of time scale
2: i certainly didn't envisage it until really the spring of 1974, which some people may find rather strange because we'd be already completed a nearly complete season of Grand Prix racing. What happened was that in the spring of 1973 we'd had a disastrous sort of end of 72 Formula 2 season because we'd gone up a formula with James and we'd then gone for a full Formula 2 commitment in 1974. And You obviously had to choose your cars in the autumn of the previous year and the result of this was that there were two cars to choose from and we chose the wrong car which was not basically competitive. The result of that was that we actually finished up in Formula 1 because one could see no competitive results coming in Formula 2 and we did a season in Formula 1 where firstly our results were better than anything we'd achieved in Formula to, and moreover the whole season cost me £34,000 because I bought one car off the shelf from March and I bought two Cosworth DFV engines and we had a second, a third, a fourth, a sixth and various other places and the result was that even after a full season in Grand Prix racing, I don't think any of us were really aware of just how high the cost could get once we went into building our own car, which we had to do for the 74 season, and the cost of when you don't finish. And we had a high number of non-finishes in 74 because we were paying the price of building our own technology and racing
3: it. Is that quite a big thing for you to enjoy it? I mean, supposing that you were given the chance to run, say, next year, just hypothetically, would it still be important to you that you enjoyed it?
2: I think it's essential that, it's not a question quite as much of enjoying it, but I think you've got to preserve a sense of humor because I think without a sense of humor one becomes immersed into a sport on such a scale that it becomes very much more difficult to generate the same amount of success. I mean, what is very true is that we find it quite easy to achieve a degree of success and you can't put it all down to luck in way, we were the unluckiest team in history. I mean, we never won a race by inheriting a lead, we never won a place by inheriting a lead, which out of 64 Grand Prix is practically unheard of. And I'm not complaining about that.
3: Had you not been Lord Hesketh with everything that surrounds you, would you be saying the same things? I mean, had you been born a different person, would you have had these ambitions, do you think?
2: Well, I think if I ha- if I hadn't... Being born, I think that being Lord Hesketh was a severe disadvantage because I think that no one took one seriously. They immediately put one into a sort of pigeonhole. It's it's remarkable how unperceptive people are. I mean, the minute minute you turn up at a race track because one's got a title, one's immediately dismissed as some sort of crackpot. Um, The only reward I get out of that is that um, I suppose it's rewarding to be a successful crackpot uh, compared with a lot of unsuccessful, serious people. But Fundamentally, I think that what would have happened is that one, instead of going into racing in the way that I did, I suppose I would have gone straight ahead and tried to produce something.
1: The full interview with Lord Alexander Hesketh can be found, as I mentioned, at shop.motorsportmagazine.com. Right, next up, we've got one for all you motorsport readers. I obviously don't need to tell you who Jenks is, but for those of you who don't know, Dennis Jenkinson was our continental correspondent for many, many years and travelled to all the Grand Prix. He became the voice of Grand Prix racing with, when there wasn't actually TV, and the only way that people kept up to date with the racing was through his words in Motorsport magazine. Jenks went down to Southampton to talk to Rob back in 1979, the year of Jody Schechter's World Championship. They start by talking about Jody Schechter and his arrival at Ferrari and also the fact that Enzo Ferrari said, if Jody wins the Monaco Grand Prix, I'll make sure he wins the World Championship. You also get a very small insight into the relationship between Jackie Stewart and Jenks and they also go on to talk about how important the driver is. Later in the interview, they go on to talk about Jenks' impression of James Hunt and whether he should have retired before the end of the season. They then talk about Renault's new twin-turbo and whether it will ever work, and also the up-and-coming drivers, Gilles Villeneuve and Nelson Piquet.
3: Well, from South America, it went to South Africa, and you've mentioned the the, the arrival of the T four. Mm. One thing about that is a lot. Everybody, a lot of people say, "Well, of course, Ferrari have got such incredible facilities, and they've tested the car for two thousand miles before it gets to a circuit." Is, the, is that a big factor in,
0: in? Oh, oh, yes, that's a big factor, all right. Mm.
3: How much, though, do you think they've responded to a driver like Schecter this year? Do you think there's any, any Do you think there's good teamwork going on there, for instance?
0: Um, there is now. There wasn't to begin with. It was a bit fraught to start with. Um, I think because nobody knew—no, nobody in the Ferrari team really knew Schecter, mm. Um and he didn't know them, and he wasn't interested in learning to speak Italian to them, so they had to learn to speak English. And they got this little French Canadian who could converse in in a, in a mutual language. Um, so the opening part for Schechter was pretty fraught, but he's He's well in now. And in fact, having won Monaco, he will now be world champion, says Mr. Ferrari. Before Monaco, Mr. Ferrari said, if Schecter wins at Monaco, I will make sure he is world champion. I'm not going to say how he's going to do it, but um, he's all right now, he's well away.
3: Well, so does Mr. Stewart say that Mr. is going to be world champion. What do you say about that? Who says that? Jackie Stewart says that Jody Schechter will be world champion this year.
0: What's he know about it?
3: well, what does he know about it? This is the question.
0: Separate question. Um, yes, all right. Well, I think Schechter might well be world champion. it won't do anybody any harm. Won't impress me, but...
3: Uh, Are you impressed with Schechter as a driver or not?
0: No, not particularly. He's a good runner, he's a good charger. A bit rough and unruly.
3: Well, that brings me then to the question of the... Of the the, the part that the car plays and the part that the driver plays, because you say you're not that impressed with Schechter as a driver and yet he's winning
0: races and the car is... Oh, yes, you've got to have a strong car. And you've got to have a really strong car to drive like he drives. <laughs> he passes off the kerbs a bit. Um, but
3: a couple of drivers, Jenks, namely Hunt and Watson, are shouting about the fact that only 10% is the driver and 90% is the car, I'd like to hear.
0: Mm, yeah, well, I think that speaks for itself, doesn't it? They're both sort of rather second-rate runners. I don't hear Schechter and Villeneuve saying this, or Andretti and Reutemann, or, or Lafitte and Depayot.
3: What do you say about it? I mean, is there any... How? What sort of...
0: No, I don't, I don't go along with that at all.
3: You think that you've still got to be a good driver to get there? Yes,
0: of course you have. Hmm. Of course you have.
3: What about your impressions of James Hunt this year? Because he's had an awful lot of uh, press coverage about um, is he really trying or is he just waiting for the end or this kind of thing. I mean, I'd Well,
0: like he, he said himself he's waiting for the end, and so I said, well, he might as well pack up now. There's no point in going on if he's said he's, he's not going to go fast because he doesn't to hurt himself. I mean, he's racing under false pretenses. Mm. But you see, occasionally, now, uh, at Zolder, he obviously forgot what he said and he drove brilliantly mm. until he lost it. But he was having a good old go there, and it was good to see. Oh, there's the old James Hunt at it again.
3: Yeah.
0: And uh, he, he thrown away all all his inhibitions about not hurting himself and being safe and retiring and all all that nonsense. And it was the, the old James Hunt, the racer, and he was getting stuck in. It was good to watch.
3: Hmm. Can you understand why he should have made a decision at the end of last year and then gone on racing this year? Why do you think...?
0: Th- uh, well, I think he made the decision after he'd committed himself to this year, had not he? Ah, oh, I didn't know that. I think so, yeah. Right. But it seems
3: a strange way to go racing, for a, for a well, man who's been so good.
0: At yeah, that's right. That's why I say you should stop now.
3: Jenks. Hmm. before the news, we were talking about manufacturers in racing, Alfa Romeo in particular, and that therefore we must now go on to talk about Renault, because that's a big talking point, especially now with the twin turbo engine, which is a mind-boggling piece of engineering in Formula One, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But will it ever work, do you think?
0: A good question. Um... It looks nice. Uh, this twin turbo layout really does look good. Mm-hmm. The previous one looked terrible bodge up and I think one of its problems was that because there was just one turbocharger feeding all six cylinders it was working right near the bone on temperature particularly and this was giving them their problems. Now this new layout with a turbocharger for each side of the engine, so in effect you've got two three cylinder layouts, um, will mean that the the actual turbine won't have to be running at quite so limiting temperatures and presumably will give them a bit more reliability because the sort of things they've been having are exhaust manifolds cracking. Well, once you get a crack in a manifold, you see you've lost all your puff. Right. And um, then they've had trouble with the the um, oil seals on the turbo unit, obviously due to heat, you see, mm. and so all the puff goes out through the oil seal. Th- these are sort of footling things have been having, all in indicating that the whole system has been running just too near the bone, because uh, trying to cope with a 3-litre unblown engine with a 1.5-litre blown is a bit on the limit.
3: Yeah, right.
0: But they are so near it... That nobody's going to give them the benefit of letting them go to one point eight liters. Right. I mean, they've discussed this in the technical bureau and so on. But of course, all the people running three liter engines say, "Oh no, no, we're quite happy with the situation. It's all fine," because Renault are so near. They're certainly they're right up alongside as far as just sheer power. It's a reliability they with a big problem, um, that nobody's going to let them have one point eight liters turbocharged. Otherwise, they really blow everybody off. Yeah. Um, what has been noticeable this season that the Renault V6 engine has been a lot more reliable. It hasn't been breaking rods and collapsing pistons and things. Their troubles have been other things. Whereas last year the, there were some pretty spectacular engine blow-ups and uh, holes in blocks and rods out the side were pretty common thing. But they, they've been a lot better this year. So obviously they've uh, conquered the mechanical reliability of the of the engine itself, it's now the installation they've got to work away at.
3: We said we were going to talk about the the young up and coming people and there have been there's been tremendous um, sweeping statements about both Villeneuve and Piquet this year. People saying it uh, made by me. Um, were they? I yes I've made some pretty serious statements well, about them. You have about Villeneuve, yes and yeah. I, I was and Piquet perhaps. But but I wonder I wonder I'd like oh, to perhaps th- it's all
0: in, in tomorrow's motorsport <laughs> <laughs> priced at and available from yes. that's right yes um but uh, i better warn you it's going up in price next month too so we better <laughs> buy it this month <laughs> yes then. get it while you can <laughs>
3: um but let, let's hear tonight jenks what um do you feel that we are now watching the the, the real i hate to use the word but superstars but the real men of talent of the future you think that they are pk and Villeneuve?
0: yes without a doubt um they I, i've got certain parameters in my book as to what makes a good racing driver I'm not going to enumerate them now and when I see a new boy come along I tick off all the little things I've got in my book and both those drivers have got a maximum number of ticks and this encompasses everything not just driving the car the whole attitude to being a Grand Prix driver and they both add up very well indeed
3: when did you last see somebody like this arrive
0: Mm I was just going back a bit. Fittipaldi, I think probably.
3: Yeah, it's interesting.
0: And Stuart before that.
3: Really, and these these men um, are in the, in that class. Not yet, but they no. they're heading that way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'd like to to finish where we started, and that was talking about Jody Schachter as the nineteen seventy nine world champion. And you mentioned that uh, Mr. Ferrari would ensure that it happened, and I was. I'd like to ask you to enlarge on that a little bit. What what happens at Ferrari when they decide someone's going to be world champion, Jax?
0: That's a good question, which I don't really know the answer to. I'm I'm watching to see what the answer is. Um, I'm not going to say that they're going to screw Villeneuve into the ground, but he is number two. And if Ferrari says, right, I want Schechter to win all the races, you will follow him. And Villeneuve is a very sensible young man, He's now just signed a contract for another two years with Ferrari and he will do that. Mm. And I hope he does because he's the last person I want to see world champion this year. He's not ready for it. Mm. I would like to see him second or third or fourth or something, win a few races, do a good good job. And if all goes well, then he'll just slaughter everybody next year and the year after that and the year after that. (laughs) That will be good in my book. But I don't want to see him world champion this year, that'd be silly.
3: With maybe a bit of trouble from PK along the way,
0: Um One step behind him, all the way along the line.
3: Yep. So, an interesting prospect ahead then.
0: Yes, indeed.
1: So sad that we never saw the full potential of Gilles Villeneuve. He never did win those world championships that Jenks predicted after tragically dying at Zolder in 1982. Next up, we hear from the Radio Victory producer, Mike Lawrence, who went to go and interview Sterling Moss in 1978. They talk about the different standards of Formula One drivers throughout the history of the sport, Sterling's gamesmanship, which is an amazing insight into what it took to be a professional, in Sterling's eyes anyway. They also talk about his standout races, there were 500 to choose from, and the milimilia with Dennis Jenkinson. compare
4: drivers from different periods, it's noticeable that at present you would probably find a smaller gap between pole man and slowest qualifier on many grids as there might have been, say, twenty years ago between number one and number two drivers in Maserati, days, yes. for example. Now obviously there are a number of technical factors why this should be with the tires and so on. But do you really think that the average ability of a modern Grand Prix grid is higher than it was, say, 20 years
5: ago. Oh, I think the overall standard, in other words, your lesser drivers, I think are far better than the lesser drivers. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. Nicky Lauda, Mario Andretti, James, whoever you want to take. Uh, I don't think that the Fangio of today is any better than the Fangio of yesteryear. Any more than do necessarily do I think the Fangio is better than Caracciolo or Nuvolari. I think he probably was marginally the best, but I think you're talking about such small things it doesn't make any difference. I do think, however, that your middlemen to the lower drivers today if you like your Rolf Stomelhams, your Rupert Keegans, and so on, I think are better than the equivalents of those guys were in the, say, the 50s. I think the reason for that is that there's many more people trying to get in the sport because of a lot more money. I think the reason that they've closed right up and it's made it appear less, though, is obviously much more because of the technical advances. Because I do believe that today you can take not quite as good a driver, and put him in, in the best driver's car, and he won't be, he, he doesn't look that far away. And I think it's one of the unfortunate things of motorsport. I think it's important, really, to show how good your Andrettis and Lauders are. Um, I think it's a pity if they only seem to be marginally better than the man who's middle, middle field. Because I, I think it makes people think, well, gosh, you know, I haven't got to go much quicker, and I'll be, and I'll be the best, and, and they're nowhere near the best. You know, I think think the gap between Fangio and Harry Schell was enormous. But I think the gap between your top guys now and the middlemen is still enormous. You know, and it doesn't show it. I mean, uh, Fangio's day, if he he did Nürburgring, shall we say, 9 minutes 15 or 16 but a middle driver would be struggling to do 10 minutes you know and you could say my god he's half a minute slower and it looked a lot and it was a lot but now they'd be they'd be as as the fastest crossed the line uh, the other one would be in sight and i think it's a shame really although on the face of it you'd think it would make closer racing and probably it does but uh I I just don't, there's nothing one can do because I think it's, that is development, that is what the game's all about. I think you've got extremely good cars, it's very sophisticated. I think that nowadays the opportunity of a driver compensating a car's lack of, of lack of something, whether it be speed or road holding or whatever, is very, very difficult. I I think that he can't. I think the car's got to be right, or else he can't really do much with it. I think, with the older cars, if you had a really great driver like Fangio, I think he could take a pretty bad wheelbarrow and still do pretty well with it. And, unfortunately, I don't think that can happen today, which is a pity. You're also notorious for gamesmanship. Yeah.
4: And Uh, I'd like to know which legitimate ploys gave you the most pleasure to execute, and Wait, how did other drivers try to psych you out, and did any of them succeed?
5: Well, I'll answer the second part first. I don't know because I never never took the psych, and so therefore all I can say is I don't think they <laughs> it succeeded. Or if they if 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 they tried it it didn't succeed. If they didn't try it, well then it it wouldn't succeed. Um, on the first first part, I believe in racing that anything that is legal is fair to do. I don't believe in running an oversized engine or running on. Dope. if you're only allowed petrol, I think that that is cheating. I I think it isn't a narrow line, but I suppose one could say it's a narrow line between cheating and gainsmanship. but the one thing that I did, which I suppose was cheating, but I don't consider it was, because I think the regulation was was a a ridiculous one, was in the Alpine Rally, when I had my coupe at stake, uh, the regulation said that you've got to have the four gears that you started with. Well, on the car that I had, the al- on the Sunbeam Alpine, we had a, a an overdrive, which normally cars have on top, so you have a fifth gear, but on this we made it work on second, third, and fourth. Although we didn't obviously use it in the, in, the milieu, in the middle gears very often, but occasionally it would help if you're going between hairpins or something. You might take second to overdrive, second and back to second, and that's what was the idea of it. Anyway, um, when I got to the end of the race, unfortunately I happened to have lost second and top, I think. I can't remember exactly which gears they were, but I'd lost two gears. And uh, some other competitor, being a jolly good sport, had mentioned this to the organisers, that I had lost a gear. So they said, well, listen, you know, if you've lost a gear, you're out. So I said, well, of course I haven't lost a gear. Look, I've got four gears there. So they said, well, show us. And they put a man in the car with me, and I had to take him and show him that I'd got four gears. And on the Sunbeam torbid it had one of those levers on the steering wheel as you wind around, you know, to find the gears. And I remember going in first, and I showed him, well, there's first, and I pulled it out of first and waggled it around and went into second underdrive and said, there's second. He said, yes. And then I pulled it out and went around again and so sort of went back into second, but flicked the lever with my finger sh- so it was a higher gear, which was pretty obvious. And I said, third, troisième. He said, yes. And I pulled it out again and then went into the other gear that was operating, shall we say, fourth, with the underdrive and said, well, there's fourth. And he said, yes, that's all right. And so I had actually shown the four gears but they weren't the right four <laughs> gears and I got it well I suppose in a way that's cheating but to me that, that uh, that's legal because regulations are are made to be got round if you can get round them um, now the other sort of things that I would do obviously I mean there were things that I remember one at Alton Park once I was in a real hurry I needed I need to go f- catch somebody up and the only way to get round a particular curve I seem to remember before the was to, if you kept your foot flat on it, you, you needed to go in, into the pits and cross the line. And if you crossed the line, you were meant to be going... They, there was a new regulation where if you crossed the line, to stop people coming through the pits, they put a white line there. And if you crossed this line, it meant you should stop in the pits. So I remember that I had to go across this because a car was in the way, I think, or something. Anyway, I went across it, and at the same time I put my hand out as I was going into the pits. And I kept my foot flat out, and went through, and just as I got past, I then sort of made a noise on the accelerator, lifting on and off, and pretending that I was changing gear and that everything had rectified itself and so I could carry on, uh, which again, I suppose, was um, stretching the regs a bit. But there are, you know, there were so many of these things that one would do, I mean, getting people like Phil Hill to go up the escape road, um, which isn't particularly easy. One wouldn't do that to inexperienced drivers, but if you're racing against a guy who's sort of world champion, and you can go down the straight and come to the last moment that you could possibly break which we'll say is 360 yards away and if I was going neck and neck as I had before with Phil Hill and we get to 360 yards I would then wave him on and at the same time break absolutely as hard as I could knowing that if if he went on no way was he gonna get round the corner and in fact of course he did and he and he couldn't get round the corner he went up the escape road which gave me a bit of breathing space. Other things I would do would be at rance again which was one of those courses where you had a very fast straights three fast straights and uh, the pits when you went through the pits past the timing uh, depot it wasn't you weren't quite at your maximum and i found that if i overshot the corner before the pits and came into the pit straight, therefore, by a slightly different entry instead of coming round the hairpin, which was over a right angle, if I went up the escape road, the right angle, or shall we say the 80 degree turn, then became 110, if you follow me. So I would overshoot the the thing, wait till there was nobody coming, this is in practice, and then come round that corner and therefore get a a lead, a speed, into the, the straight, the pit straight, Um, maybe five or six miles an hour faster, therefore get a a quicker, a faster time on that lap for the start grid. Didn't do anything in the race, but uh, those sort of things would help, particularly for the hundred bottles of champagne for fastest lap, you see. And, you know, there there are a lot of things that, that one could do, and if I could remember them more, I mean, I remember them from time to time, but, uh, these sort of things were, I think, part of being a professional racing driver. I mean, the reason that you are paid well and uh, for the sport is because these things you have to try to find.
4: Why is it always? Who do you think you are, Sterling Moss?
5: They never ever said it about Jim Clark or Jackie Stewart or Graham. I think one of the reasons is because I'm lucky my name's Sterling. My my uh, mother wanted to call me Hamish, and thank God my father said you can forget that and go back and have another thing. My mother then came up with, the, my mother's Scotch, you see, came yeah. up with Sterling, um, which was, the family had some connection with it, which I think was very good. I think another reason the, why I was so lucky is because when I started to race, it was just after the war. There were not many competing. I mean, I only had to beat ten or fifteen guys, and I was the best in my class, at least 500 cc class. Uh, the, c- the cars that were being built, the new cars, there were not many, and uh, there were not many events. So if I if I happened to race uh, each week, that was about the only race there was. Well, now my gosh, there are dozens and dozens of races. I don't mean world championship, but in those days, if I if I drove up Prescott Hill Climb, it was likely to be uh, mentioned in in the national press. Now, of course, it wouldn't be. So, I was lucky from that point of view. Uh, also, I was lucky because being young, it's much easier to write about a person who's 17 or 18 and winning than it is about a man who's 27 or 28 and winning. So that was another thing I was lucky about. And finally, I think I was lucky because uh, because I decided and wanted to drive English cars. They weren't the, the fastest. And I was invariably the underdog. And I think that the English character of person sort of champions the underdog rather than the winner. And this is why, you know, people at one time were saying, gosh, you know, it'd be great if somebody could beat Ferrari. And then Ferrari was beaten, and everybody said, fantastic. And now everybody's hoping Ferrari will win again, because he isn't winning anymore. And people want to see the Lotuses beaten, and, and then they want to see this one. And I think I was lucky, because I was never the sort of guy to be beaten. Right, I was British champion ten times and so on, but that isn't like being world champion. And I think I lost my world championship by half a point one year, and by one point another year, and I think that was so close, people said, gosh, that's bad luck, really, you did win more races than, say, Mike, but you didn't get the title, which I think, in many ways, was a good thing, actually, looking back. Yes, and looking back also,
4: I mean, you're now one or two off of having competed in 500 races. Yeah. You've actually won more races than anybody else in motor racing history. Yes, I think I have. That's 224. Yeah. And, out of all those, which are the
5: ones that really stand out most for you? Boy, when you've done 500 races, it's very difficult. (laughs) The ones that stand out, I suppose, most are Nürburgring and Monaco of 1961, which was my last full year, but it was the year when I had the uh, four-cylinder Climax engine in the Lotus against the Ferraris, the two, four, sixes, and eights, with the eight-cylinder cars, which were superior on speed, but not on handling, and I think those were two of my best races. I think the Mille Melia obviously of 1955, which is a rate- race I disliked intensely, uh, because I couldn't learn the circuit, and I don't like going on the circuit I don't know, and if it hadn't been for the help of Dennis Jenkinson, my passenger, who sort of took me round in Braille, practically, signalling every darn corner and hump and so on, uh, that, I think, was a, was another fantastic race. I mean, to have a race that took ten hours and four minutes to compete over a thousand miles with, I don't know how many tens of thousands of corners, um, overtaking, well, six hundred and something cars started, I don't know how many we passed, but we passed an awful lot and the exhilaration of being going on the on the straight or on the corners and seeing a, a red car just disappear around the corner and then you can tell you're getting closer and you get closer and closer and then you can read the number and you see it's one of your competitors and then passing him is, is fantastic and to have somebody with you who can share the pleasure is is what is so great about having two people. I mean, in Formula One, there's only yourself and it's fantastic acceleration when you catch another guy and there's, there's spectators. But in, in a sports car race with a passenger, I mean, it is it's incredible when you can sort of lean across and nudge nudge the guy and say, boy, that'll sort him out. And plus, of obviously, five million spectators, whatever. That, I think, was another one of my great races. I think the race at Monza when I was managed to win by, I suppose, by misleading the opposition when I had a Cooper. With um, didn't have knock-off wheels, we had studs, stud fixing wheels and it was tremendously hard on the tyres, and everybody was going to have to change tyres and I said to Alf, I reckon if we're really careful I might just get through this um, thing without changing tyres, but we won't let them know so uh, obviously I said when halfway comes, go out with a, with a board, with, a, with the jack and sort of signal that I've got to come in, in so many laps and we did this and the other teams c- pulled in and they didn't mind too much because I was in the lead then as, the, as they pulled out because they knew I had to stop because I'd been going around saying how unfair it was it would take me a minute to change well, of course, I didn't need to that I think was was a, a good race the one in Argentina which was similar but different which was when I finished up actually on literally through to the canvas for the same reason that the road was hot and and uh it was a very very hard surface on tyres, and again, all the other cars had sto- had their pit stops and changed tyres and didn't mind too much about mine. And I went through with the, with the little Cooper. Uh, that was another another I think good
4: good race. In fact, that race more than any other changed the face of motor racing, didn't it? Because yeah.
5: the first r- r- Well, that, yes, for for uh, for the lightweight small rear engine cars. Mm. Oh, absolutely. And that was, I mean, it showed how great the little cars were, and how this had to be the route to go with the rear engines, and so on. Um, that was, and another race that meant an awful lot to me was the one that I won in, in the van war, at Silverstone, because it, sh- it, it gave me the opportunity to realise, my God, at last we've got a British car that might win. Oh, and that after that, I uh, signed up. That was in 1956? Yeah. The international yes, it was the International trip. It Was not, It was not, at that time, World Championship, but that, that sort of got me to agree to sign up and drive four for Vanwell.
1: Lastly, we're now going to rewind back to 1977 and the British Grand Prix that year when Radio Victory had an away day out of the office. Rob Widows went to Silverstone and he interviewed James Hunt, Gunnar Nielsen, Carlos Reutemann, Emerson Fittipaldi, Marianne Andretti, Jody Schechter, and David Purley before his terrible accent that weekend.
3: What about the world champion, James Hunt? This must be a very important race for him.
1: If I continue to struggle, as we, we have done this year, um, and haven't made many more points, I should think that Silverstone would just about be my last chance. If, on the other hand, uh, I've got a few points, then I think it will be, in a, it'll be a turning point for me to capitalise there. So whatever happens, uh, quite apart from the fact that it's the British Grand Prix, it's my home Grand Prix, and I shall naturally be uh, specially charged up to do the best I can as always there, um, I shall probably have the added stimulus that it, 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 it is bound, whatever, to be a critical race for me in the World Championship. It's a fast circuit. The car should go well on a fast circuit if we've got the thing set up right and matching to the
6: tyres properly.
3: One man who's done very well this year is the Lotus number 2 driver Gunnar Nielsen. What sort of race did he think it would be?
6: I think it will be quite good because our car likes reasonable quick corners, which we have at Silverstone. So I think we can be looking forward to a nice result then. If you are a racing driver, England is the home country for racing, really. And it's been my home country since I joined racing. And it's always nice to come back to Silverstone and Brands and all the circuits in England because that's where I started. And I think it's like that for most of the people in racing. You know, it's a high-speed circuit and, and you've got to have your car really, really balanced very well because when you have a high-speed circuit, a little mistake, you lose so much time. So it's basically just a matter of getting it right.
3: And the Ferrari number two driver, Carlos Reutemann, how is he feeling?
6: I think it's going to be a very hard race Silverstone because... It's very important uh, for the British team to win in Silverstone. All the teams in Formula 1, part of the big teams, are British. And I think everybody wants to win in Britain. And I think uh, making the Silverstone Grand Prix is very hard.
3: The former world champion, Emerson Fittipaldi, has had an appalling season. What was he feeling about this Grand Prix? I hope uh, my car in Silverstone will be more competitive than uh, in Dijon and uh, it's a very fast circuit Silverstone, fast corners, and you really need to have a good balance on the car to be able to put the power down earlier through the corners, and that's why we're aiming for Silverstone. When we get the balance right on fast corners, you could be very quick on fast corners, and that's, I hope, uh, will be quick in Silverstone. Really, the English public, they love motor race, they like sports, And, uh, you know, the ambience is really hot in England. Of course, the man who's been in with the best chance all year so far is Colin Chapman's number one driver, Mario Andretti. Was he confident?
6: Our car should be quite suited to that particular course and naturally would have a little extra incentive for us since uh, the Grand Prix is sponsored by a giant player to uh, win their own Grand Prix. I guarantee you one thing, we're going there with our best foot forward. Usually a quick circuit um, suits our car just properly. Uh, I think it's very well balanced aerodynamically and uh, also look forward to perhaps breaking in a new car there. I've had somewhat good luck with the new cars uh, since I started Long Beach. So maybe the new model might have uh, just a bit of an edge. There's a tremendous amount of emphasis in the British Grand Prix in a sense that uh, British being in the last decade at least, uh, the hotbed of uh, road racing, uh, everything focuses onto this particular, onto the Grand Prix of England. It's very quick, and naturally the quick corners are always challenging to everyone. However, I find it slightly difficult in uh, getting the proper entry of the chicane, and I find that the chicane, time-wise, is very important, where you could lose a lot of time or gain a lot of time. So... It's an area where I do a lot of the concentrating in the setup of the car. One thing that uh, has always impressed me about England is uh, how mannered, well-mannered and how polite the kids are when they ask for an autograph. At
3: the beginning of this year in South America, it looked very much as though the South African driver Jody Schachter, sponsored by the millionaire Walter Wolf, was going to be world champion. Since then, he hasn't had so much luck. How did he feel about Silverstone?
6: I think the chicane has become a little bit of a challenging, uh, you can't really pick your line until you're right on top of it and if you go,
2: your limit going in there is very small, you can can overdo it quite easily going in. But the rest of the corners are just very fast uh, corners which you've, uh, I don't know, the car's got to be right, I don't know what's really got to be right to go fast at Silverstone.
3: Motor racing is an extremely dangerous sport, especially at this Grand Prix level, and tragedy can often strike. On the Wednesday before the Grand Prix, David Purley from Bognor Regis had the most appalling accident in the new Lec Grand Prix car. I spoke to him during the week and I asked him how he was going to approach this all-important race for a privateer. I know the track. It's a good, fast circuit. This car of mine is fast and straight line. We've still got a lot of develop- development work to do on it, but uh, I think it's going to be a, you know, maybe a, maybe quite an interesting meeting for us. National drivers, they, they, they like to excel at their national Grand Prix, and, and uh, I'm no exception. Um, and I think it's always a lot easier for the uh, driver of the country that, uh, whose Grand Prix it is because the crowds are always behind them. They get a tremendous support from them and uh, I just hope that I will put up a good showing. We were doing speed tests down here last Tuesday, and Ken Terrell very kindly lent us his his, uh, speed trap machine, which tells you the sort of speeds that you're doing. We were hitting 164... In a straight line, and I think the fastest was Nicky Lauda, who was doing about 167. We were about fourth fastest, so we're, we're pretty good, actually, in the straight line. David Purley from Bognor Regis, who, of course, is the most popular driver on the circuits in this country, and everybody in the Victory area wishes him well. The news tonight from Northampton Hospital is that he is making good progress, and team manager Mike Earl has only just told me that today that he's already giving the nurses some stick, so it looks like David Purley is well on the way to recovery, and we hope to see him very much at the end of this year back in the pre cut
1: I really hope you've got a small insight into the new Motorsport Magazine audio archive and all these wonderful track talk recordings that Alan Hyde has so masterfully digitised we've got lots on there and we're going to be adding more every month throughout 2016 so do go to chop.motorsportmagazine.com and get them now